You know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction of what they really have? The streaming service actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only about 6,000 of those are available in the good old US of A. That means you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows. Unless, of course, you use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location, protecting your devices from unwanted snooping and allowing you to control where streaming services and other websites think you're located. There are over 100 different locations to choose from, which means you have access to thousands of new shows and movies no matter where you live. This doesn't just work with Netflix, it works with Disney+, Hulu, Max, a UK streamer called BBC iPlayer, and more. I was on a work trip in the UK during the final season of Game of Thrones, and I tried logging into my HBO account to watch a new episode, but the technology wouldn't let me because of geoblocking. And I wish I had this app at that moment, because I now realize how incredibly easy it is to work around that problem. Here's a more recent example. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is not streaming on Netflix in the US, but I just fired up the episode where Dennis tries to have a peaceful mental health day and technology keeps interrupting his plans. All I had to do was open ExpressVPN, connect to a UK server, refresh Netflix, and the show just popped up. It's super easy. I've also heard good things about that show called Billions, but I've never been a Showtime subscriber, so I've never seen it. But it's actually available right now on Netflix in South Korea, and with ExpressVPN, it took five seconds to switch over and start checking it out. With ExpressVPN, you get high-quality streaming from devices like your phone, laptop, tablet, and TV. And crucially, it protects your privacy and security to keep your information safe from hackers. Stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you all three extra months free when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash slash film. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slash film to get three extra months completely free. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, August 2nd, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor, Wai Chang Bui. Hey, everyone. Hey, she, how's it going? I'm good. I'm good. You know, the summer is starting to wane. Isn't that crazy, Ben? It <laughs> it's is, already yes. almost the end of summer. Where did it go? I don't know. Uh, truly, yeah, we're, we're in bonkers territory here. Um, so we haven't really been doing much, but let's get into what we've been reading because you and I have both been uh, cracking books open recently. Um, I read a book called The Last Unicorn, and HC, this is like very much up your alley. Have you ever read this I book before? have read it. It okay. was one of my favorite books growing up. I have <laughs> watched the film multiple times too. I have a little art print of The Last Unicorn. So yes, this is very exciting for me that you read this book. Amazing. Yeah. I, uh, I, I didn't know really anything about it. I don't think I'd ever heard of it. I definitely did not know that there was an animated movie uh, about it like or based on it. Um, as soon as I finished, I was uh, finished reading it. I was like, man, this would be a pretty wild movie. I'm not sure if they could pull it off in live action. And then I Googled it and found out that it was an animated film. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes way more sense. Animated so. film that some Studio Ghibli animators did some work on as well. Oh, interesting. Fact, okay. Which we wrote about on SlashFilm.com. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll try to track down that uh, that article. But um, my wife and I both read this and she really loved it. And I, I liked it a lot too. I thought um, that it, it 
I think it reminded me a little bit of like um, the Princess Bride, sort of like that that fairy tale, that sense of that the author was almost like making it up as he was going along um, as like a story to tell his kids. It, it sort of has that feeling, but it's more um, it's more polished than you know, the pure off the cuff storytelling that, you know, your parents might've had when you were a, a child, the kind of thing. So, uh, but it still has that sort of, um, I don't know, that, that sort of like fantasy innocence to it. And then some of the the prose in here uh, is really impressive and, and sort of um, like, frankly, amazing. Like, you know, when you, when I read something like, um, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this, when I read something like uh, a song of ice and fire, right? Like the George R. R. Martin fantasy novels, those are all um, very much like set in, even though there's dragons and magic and stuff, the descriptions of everything are very grounded and realistic and tactile. And it sort of feels like, Oh, I understand in my mind's eye, every detail of what you're explaining to me. But there are moments in the last unicorn where the language sort of swells into this like otherworldly transcendent explanations of, um, you know, how magic is taking place or where characters are going or like the, the way that certain things happen. And I'm like, I can't, I can no longer picture what this is in my head, but I kind of still love it anyway. Do you know what I'm talking about, HC? I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's what I absolutely love about The Last Unicorn. Um, and I think that there is a melancholy to it too that um, I think is separate, sets it apart from some, some of the more satirical writings of uh, The Princess Bride. There is what I love about Blast Unicorn is that, that it kind of feels like a remnant of an ancient time, uh, the story that it's telling of, you know, the last unicorn, of this sort of last bastion of ancient magics and how it's slowly fading away and being forgotten um, and how that's something that is uh, going to cost the world eventually. Mm -hmm. um, and when it's forgotten, like, what will the world become? That kind of thing. Uh, and I think that the book really taps into that idea, these primordial forces that are beyond our comprehension and understanding and are mysterious and beautiful and wonderful and terrifying. And um, I think that's that's why The Last Unicorn has endured as a story. Uh, and I really think you should watch the film because I think that it taps into the Peter S. Beagle novel in a way that, you know, is very powerful uh also has a a sequence in the film that terrified me as a child Ooh, like borderline horror i was like what a, it's like a dancing uh dancing skeleton i think and mm. boar oh, God, what was the boar's name it was like the the, the boar that's like in the ocean yeah the the red bull god the red bull terrifying um also very like primordial image uh yeah i'm glad that you liked it and um i'm talk about this book forever because I but I haven't read it in a long time but um, <laughs> one that I, I think is still like nestled in my childhood bookshelf um, absolutely adore this book and yeah it's great I should say that that uh, Peter S. Beagle is the author it came out in 1968 originally and um, I think the movie came out in like the, the late 70s or early 80s or something mm -hmm. like that um, and so yeah I, I would definitely like just the, the very very basic like one sentence plot synopsis is that it's about this unicorn who realizes that she may be the last of her kind. And she has a sense that there are other unicorns out there and she meets this sort of a cut rate magician on this journey across the, the world to try to track down and, and see if she is indeed the last unicorn. So um, yeah, definitely worth checking out if you're into fantasy storytelling at all. HD, what have you been reading? Well, uh, this is, I feel like we've kind of flipped 
uh, the types of books that we've been reading, Ben, because I've been reading an Agatha Christie book oh, called yes. Endless Night. I know that you've uh, been going through her catalog quite uh, thoroughly. This is actually the first Agatha Christie book that I've read. I just Interesting. Yeah, I haven't read any of her books. I saw this at my local book exchange and I was like, you know what? I should read an Agatha Christie book and this seems fun. The cover is falling apart, but whatever. It's just, it's, a, it's something I'm getting for free. Um, and Endless Night is a crime novel published in 1967. It follows a couple that moves into a house on a piece of land called uh, Gypsy's Acre, which is believed to be cursed by the local inhabitants. Um, and I won't go further than that because I actually have only got about halfway through. Um, but I am, I was quite surprised to learn uh, how gothic this novel was. Mm. I mean, maybe um, her other novels are equally as gothic, but having been familiarized with Agatha Christie through adaptations of her works, I don't quite think so. But also, what a stroke of luck that the first Agatha Christie novel that I pick up uh, is a gothic novel because gothic novels are one of my favorite genres. So <laughs> it's it's very much in line with sort of the gothic trappings. Um, a, a romance in which uh, there is a one of the characters is keeping many held secrets. One of the characters is from a very different um, class background from the other. Uh, they move into a house that uh, may have some, some you know, unseemly background mm. to it. Uh, it's isolated. There's it's dark. It's a lot of you know. There's a there may be curses involved. I quite like it so far. Um, one thing I don't, I will say, I don't like the protagonist at all. Mm. <laughs> That's my one problem. I'm like, this protagonist kind of sucks. Like I don't like, I don't sympathize with him at all, but <laughs> otherwise I am enjoying Endless Night quite a lot. It, ben, having read a lot more Agatha Christie novels than I have, is there any sort of gothic tinge to her other novels? You know, I've only read the Poirot stuff and you managed to find a book that came very late in her writing career. I mean, 67 is looks, it looks like when Endless Night was published and her first novel, the first Poirot book was published in 1921. So she was like 45 years into her writing career by the time she got around to writing Endless Night. And this is like one of a handful of just pure mystery novels that don't involve the characters of, uh, Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple, who's like the female um, protagonist that she wrote a lot of books about as well. Um, so I've not gotten to this part yet, and I have not actually dipped into any of the Miss Marple stuff. I've only been reading the Poirot novels because there are so many of those, but um, I've probably read, I don't know, seven, eight, nine of those, is some, maybe maybe around there um, at this point. And so I still have like a lot, <laughs> a lot of work to do to make my way through her bibliography. But what you're saying is really interesting to me because it doesn't sound like anything like what the, the typical Poirot um, formula really is for the books that I've read so far. So um, maybe that's something that she was sort of like uh, just, you know, shaking off the the formulaic stuff that she had been doing and was just looking to sort of break free and, and stretch her legs a little bit and, and do something new um, with Endless Night. Or uh, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't delved deep enough into her bibliography to, to know if that's like representative of all of the, um, the non Poirot, non Miss Marple stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of it at the end. And uh, if you read another one of the, this sort of straight mystery novels that she writes, if you'll be able to pick up on little, um, you know, hints of, of uh, the same kind of structure and stuff, because that's definitely part of the, the Poirot stuff that I've, that I've read so far. Mm, for sure. 
Awesome. Okay, so let's get into what we've been watching. Uh, HD, you've watched uh, a bunch of relatively new things. Um, why don't you kick it off with Bullet Train? Yes, yeah, so I've watched Bullet Train, the new film directed by David Leitch, starring Brad Pitt, as an assassin who boards a train in Japan to pick up a, a briefcase, a relatively simple um, you know, mission that uh, is given to him. But uh, everything, of course, goes awry, and he can't seem to leave the train because multiple assassins are after this briefcase, uh, and there may be other uh, nefarious dealings on board. Uh, this is a pure popcorn trash movie. Then, um, having I'm not I can't say that I'm a big fan of David Leach. I think that he is honestly the less talented of the John Wick directors. Um, I think that uh, Chad Stahelski obviously was kind of carrying the first John Wick for a lot of it, um, but. Uh, David Leach definitely took away a lot of the style and panache that the John Wick movies are known for. And I feel like a lot of his films and Bullet Train especially are all style and panache and also his friends riffing on screen for a long amount of times. Mm. That being said, I kind of had fun. Okay. <laughs> it's not a great movie. It's not one that I would go see again per se, but I think all the all the performers are having fun. Uh, Brad Pitt. Um Oh my gosh, there's so many people. I'm like, who else was in this movie? Uh, Sandra Bullock and Bad Bunny. Sandra and, uh, Bullock, Bad Bunny. Um, and uh, let's see, Joey King, um, Aaron Taylor Johnson, and uh, Brian Tyree. Uh, Henry? Hen yeah, Brian Henry. Yes, Brian Tyree Henry. Um, and just a, a lot of great actors who are really hamming it up. Uh, and also hamming up their accents. There's a million accents in this movie. Um, so definitely a film that is like, you know, it's a good sort of blockbuster flick to watch and definitely much more stylized than what you'll be seeing in other blockbusters that, you be, that might be coming out at this moment. Cough, <laughs> the gray man. <laughs> um, but yeah, bullet train, perfectly fine. Okay. Uh all right, I, I suspect that you're not going to think this next movie is perfectly fine. I feel like you're going to have like stronger feelings in one direction or the other about 3,000 Years of Longing. Oh my gosh, 3,000 Years of Longing. I have been looking forward to this movie ever since it was announced. This is George Miller's new film starring Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. I adore this movie, Ben. Yay, this is I'm excited. one of my favorite movies of the year so far. Um, it's an ode to the power of storytelling uh, in this epic saga that is told over the course of 3,000 years, um, but mostly takes place in a hotel room. It's, it's definitely uh, a COVID-era production, but at the same time, it's so wildly imaginative and it's so um, sumptuous and luscious and visually dazzling uh, that I, I know some people might have issue with it. I think that it's, it feels very staid to, to a lot of people is what I've heard, but I think that the the style that it has uh, is very in keeping with the sort of Arabian Nights type of storytelling that the story thus unfolds as. So the story is Tilda Swinton is a um, is a sort of not historian, but she studies storytelling essentially, um, and she finds a lamp and um, unleashes a genie from within it, and the genie is Idris Elba, who tells her uh, his tale of woe, which is thousands of years of. Um, being imprisoned in this lamp and imprisoned by his own weakness for falling in love with humans. Mm. Oh gosh, 
then this is everything that this is a movie that was basically made for me. <laughs> um, it's just it's such a, a fairy tale, whimsical film that I just tapped into those ner- those center nerve centers in my brain, those pleasure centers that were like, yeah, HT. This is all about fairy tales and stories and love, and it's very very you know packed with with these kind of. I don't know. It's just it's an ode to storytelling, which is what I I really really love. That it's about stories and about the power of stories as much as as it is structured around telling several long stories. So it's it's fantastic, Ben. I'm so excited for everyone to see it. Amazing. Okay. So yeah, this comes out I think later this month. Is yes. that right? Okay. Late August. Um, I want to say August 23rd. I might be wrong. Okay. Yeah, 20... I'll say August twenty something. Okay, all right, excellent. Uh, I think August twenty sixth is a is a Friday, so maybe it's that day. Uh, I know yes. that that's the day that I'm leaving <laughs> to go on my <laughs> vacation. So uh, I've had that date circled for a long time. Okay, um, what else have you been watching? HD? I watched Nope, um, which I actually really enjoyed. I I will say I think it's probably the weaker of Jordan Peele's films, but it's also him in blockbuster mode doing his best Spielberg, which in and of itself is such a joy to experience. Um, I Have you seen Nope, Ben? Yeah, Chris and I did a big um, spoiler conversation, I think, last week on the podcast about it that went mm-hmm. like 45 minutes or something. Yeah. No, I really, really enjoyed it. And um, I actually, I watched it with people who didn't enjoy it as much. So I was like, was I wrong? But, you know, coming away from it and coming away from their sort of uh, negative Nancy opinions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was like, that was a great movie. And I'm excited to see it again. I'm actually going to go see it again uh, this weekend. But uh, upon after seeing it, I'm really enjoying seeing the readings of it and seeing people's readings of it. And I, I'm just so happy that Jordan Peele uh, is such a director that can pull people into movies and into theaters um, that for a movie that is, you know, as on the surface, as enjoyable and as spectacle filled as this, but also has so much, has so many layers to it. And it's about mm-hmm. Hollywood and exploitation and all that kind of stuff. Things that I didn't really catch the first time around. And I only appreciate the more that I get away from it. So, um, wow, we are so lucky to have Jordan Peele, a blockbuster filmmaker who can pull audiences in and, you know, teach them, but also just have them enjoy themselves at the same time. Uh, great movie great time at the theater uh see this instead of oh bullet train is fine too it's not that bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm glad you dug it HD. that's awesome I, I know that there's been a lot of uh a lot of um i don't know if division is the right word but a lot of takes i guess about this movie and uh, i'm glad to, to hear that you enjoyed it I, I was probably if we had seen the movie together i fear that i would have been one of your negative nancy friends <laughs> because as soon as i walked out of it i was like ah, i don't know about that like there were some things that i just genuinely like did not understand about it. And then on a, on a fundamental story level, not necessarily like a thematic level, but the more I think about it, the more I like it. So yeah, um, yeah I, I was grateful to Chris for having that conversation with me. Cause I feel like I was sort of like working out my issues with the movie in real time. And, and I came away um, from that conversation uh, appreciating the movie even more. So yeah, um, Chris yeah, as stuff. always is right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. What else have you been watching? Uh, I watched Luck, which is the new Apple TV Plus animated feature from Skydance Animation. Uh, and uh, one unlucky thing about this film, which is which follows the story of a young girl who is fresh out of the child's uh, 
home system. She is an orphan. Um, she's never adopted throughout her life and is now on, out on her own for the first time um, and is also the unluckiest person in the world, just uh, uh, absurdly unlucky things happening to her throughout her day, keys falling into storm pipes, um, doors getting jammed, being late for work, everything breaking, etc. Um, but yes, the big unlucky thing about this movie called Luck uh, is that the shadow of John Lasseter looms over it. Uh, John Lasseter uh, is the former head of Pixar who uh, was a- accused of sexual uh, misconduct um, and left the company sort of in disgrace uh, and then was, you know, cancel culture doesn't exist. So he was soon brought on as the head of animation for Skydance Animation. Uh, this is the inaugural film for Skydance uh, Animation. And... Um, it's not good, Ben. Uh, I think you actually edited my review for this. But, I did, yes. Uh, it's very much, and if this is a film that they wanted to separate themselves from Pixar, they don't do a good job because it feels very much like a Pixar light film, but without the the soul that makes Pixar movies so inherently enjoyable. It just feels like it's running through the motions and also ripping off another Studio Ghibli film at the same time, The Cat Returns. Um, and so it kind of flattens the whimsy of, of that Ghibli film, the premise of it, and with, while taking um, a much more sort of pedantic uh, approach to the sort of high concept um, you know, a structure of a Pixar film. Yeah. Uh, so it's just disappointing. Uh, the animation is perfectly fine. It's just uh, it's just a, a very sort of, I guess, just by the numbers film. Unfortunately, yeah, the Lassiter situation is um, it's not great to put things uh, lightly. I mean, the the uh, you know he he basically got hired on by Skydance in 2019. Like I, th- I think it was 2019. It was like almost immediately after uh, he left Disney. There was like a very very short period where he did not have a an animation home, and then. Skydance scooped him up. And um, I, I think a lot of people are, are not feeling great about uh, his involvement there. I know that uh, Emma Thompson was supposed to provide a voice in Luck and she resigned from the movie because Skydance hired Lasseter, um, which I think she's like one of the few, you know, Hollywood people to essentially speak out about that. And it seems like her protest kind of fell on deaf ears because everybody's just sort of like moving forward as if it's business as usual. And I... I it's gonna it's gonna be one of those situations where like every single Skydance animation Apple TV Plus movie coming out in the next few years is gonna have that attached to it, and we're just gonna have to I don't know come up with a way to uh, be able to separate. It's almost like going back and looking at like the Miramax movies under the the Harvey Weinstein period or something, mm-hmm. and just being like, okay, there there are more people making this than just this one person. Um, you know, who's, who's sort of like notorious for bad behavior or whatever you want to call it. I mean, obviously like the, the, um, I don't mean to equate, uh, the Lasseter allegations with the, the Harvey Weinstein ones, but, um, you know what I mean? So anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's like not a great situation and, um, I wish it was better, but, uh, and it sounds like you wish that luck as a movie was better too. So, um, maybe the next one, uh, will actually better, maybe Hollywood will change its mind and, and sort of uh, start taking some of this stuff a little bit more seriously. I don't know. We can hope. We can hope. Um, other movies that I – or actually other things that I've watched. The Sandman, the new upcoming Netflix series based off of the Neil Gaiman – or based on, sorry, the Neil Gaiman graphic novels. 
I can't say much about it because the embargo for this has not been released. I can just say that I've watched it. But I will say that I've been anticipating this series uh, very, very passionately. I The graphic novels are probably my favorite graphic novels that I've read. It's it's They are novel, they're comics that have burned in my mind, the images. Um, and it's just some of the best, I think it's the best thing that Neil Gaiman has done, honestly, even more so than his great, great novels like American Gods um, or Good Omens. But um, yeah, I was looking forward to this. And that's all I can say. <laughs> that's all you can say. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I've only read that first, um, I think it's called Preludes and Nocturnes or something, mm-hmm. but the first, um, I guess, collection of, of comic issues uh, in the Sandman world. But I know that that comic means a lot to a lot of people, yourself included. And um, I'm curious to see what the reaction is going to be. This is probably going to be one that I'm not going to actually watch just because I... I feel like I need to like dive into the comics before I watch this show. And because it's a Netflix original, I know it'll always be there for me. So, um, <laughs> or will it? Well, yeah. In, in theory. Uh, so, uh, we'll see, but, um, but yeah, Sandman, I think it comes out Friday. This it comes Friday? out this right? Friday. The okay. review that I will be writing for slash is also coming out this Friday. Oh, Oh, mm, okay. <laughs> well, th- that probably says more about, uh, Netflix's opinion of Sandman than it does about yours. So, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not like you can control when the embargo date is, but, uh, okay. Let's talk about, uh, the last thing you've been watching. I'm really excited to hear what you think about this. The bear. Oh my gosh. I am so excited to talk about this series because it kind of snuck up on me. I, everyone was talking about this at some point i am all as always about a month late (laughs) um and uh this is the fx series uh that is about a chicago sandwich shop um and stars uh, what's his name uh jeremy Jeremy allen white i think allen white yes as a sort of michelin trained michelin level trained chef who comes back to his hometown chicago to take over his brother's sandwich shop after his brother died um by suicide and um, this is an incredible show. It's the most tense that I've been after, outside of watching uh, a Safdie Brothers movie. <laughs> um, and yes, I the comparisons to the to Uncut Gems and the intensity of it are very valid. But I, and I can't say that this is a, t- a take that's very original either because I saw this on Twitter. But uh, I saw someone compare this to Male Fleabag, and I thought, wow. That's extremely accurate. This okay. Is, this is a, a show that, you know, is about the restaurant industry. It's very intense. It's very grimy. It's very gritty. Um, but also it's about grief. And it's about having to come to terms with some with the with the fact that you didn't that this character didn't that you didn't know this person who was so close to you. Um, and the messiness of relationships in the aftermath of, of this kind of traumatic experience um, and throwing yourself into your work, uh, in this case, a restaurant job, which is more traumatizing than anything <laughs> that I think anyone could experience. Um, yeah, I, I found that really fascinating as a take. and I think that it's really it really brings another level to the bear, which I really enjoyed. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I like the show a lot. I really enjoyed the surprise John Bernthal. Yes, that was great. Perfect casting, by the way, of John oh, Bernthal yeah. in that in that role, which I won't spoil. But um, yeah, the bear, great show, Ben. Man, I I had never heard that fleabag thing, and I was a little um, I don't know. You probably heard in my voice. I was like, okay, uh, interesting. Let me hear what you have to say about this, and then and now I'm like trying to think about these two shows like almost 
in parallel to each other. And it's really, yeah, it's a fascinating take. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to mull that one over a little bit, but, uh, man, the bear, I think the bear might be, well, it's definitely in like the top, uh, I don't know, let's say the top five pieces of media that I've consumed this year, like movies, TV, anything. It's, it's so freaking good. So if you've not seen the show yet, if you've been holding off, it's on Hulu right now, it's, I think only eight episodes or something like that. And, um, if well, well, well worth your time, it's incredible. So, uh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Um, what do you think about, I guess, if you don't want to hear anything about the ending of the show, um, fast forward a few minutes. But Ishii, what do you think about the idea that they announced season two right away? Because it sort of was like, you know, I watched the show and loved it. And as soon as it ended, I was like, oh man, I can't wait to see the second season. But there was another part of me that was like, this also would be great if they just ended it right here because it would be this perfect little preserved thing, you know, mm-hmm. this piece of perfection that they couldn't possibly screw up. So what do you think about uh, season two? Are you really? Yeah, uh, I, when that, that final shot happened, I felt like, oh, that's a perfect ending. Um, and I, I can see why wanting to see season two, cause I feel like there's more to be done with the characters, but for, um, Carmi, the main character played by Jeremy Allen White, he, I feel like his arc is, is done in a sense. Mm. So, but of course, like, you know, they're starting a new restaurant basically, and you can see the beginnings of that. Um, and there's so many more dynamics to, to be explored between all the characters, which I really like. I like how fleshed out and how unexpected they are in terms of just like the, the roles that they serve in the in the show. Um, so I, I could see more of that, but also just like the ending is so perfect. Then. Yeah. 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 That final smile. I was like, Oh man, great idea to end with that smile. Ah, oh, good stuff. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to try to blow through a few things that I've been watching here. Um, station 11, did you watch HBO max's original series station? No, 11? I've heard good things about this, but I know it's very sad. So I feel like I have to put myself in a mindset for it. I don't remember. Have we talked about the book before? Did you read the book? I haven't read the book either. Okay. I read the book and really loved the book. And I had heard so many great things about the show. And it was on a lot of people's like top 10 of the year lists. And I hated the show. Oh, no, <laughs> it's really? It's 10 episodes and they're all hour long. And I watched all 10 and uh, just sort of seethed through a lot of it. Because wow. it is um, it is like obnoxious to an absolute fault it is it is really grating and you know you're talking about like um uh what were you talking about you were talking about uh i guess the last unicorn was it where you're talking about like the the or no it, i'm sorry it was the three thousand years of long you're talking mm-hmm. about like the the ode to the power of storytelling right mm-hmm. that, that's kind of the vibe that um that station 11 wants to give where like the the premise is that it's set during a pandemic and it's like 20 years into the pandemic and uh, all you know technology and civilization has sort of fallen away for the, for the most part. And there's this band of uh, travel, they're called the traveling symphony, this group that, um, that rides around to these little uh, almost outposts of little remaining pieces of society. And, and they perform Shakespeare plays and play music for them. So it's like on paper, that's, you know, it's all about like the, um, the power of community and, and the power of art and how it can be this restorative thing, even in the worst of circumstances, um, this idea that these people are like, um, extending this, uh, this branch back to the past and the, and the art of the past and, and, um, you know, preserving, uh, the, the, uh, beauty of, um, some of the art that was, that was created before the world turned to absolute hell. Uh, all of that sounds interesting and, and like cool. And, uh, you know, um, uh, 
earnest in a way that I would like in another context. And I actually really did like in the, the context of the novel, but as a show, it's just, it's so obnoxious. I can't, it's I like cannot watching a bunch you. of theater kids and you're just, it is. Oh, it's hundred percent. It. Yeah. It's really, it's just like super cringy. And, um, yeah, I got like secondhand cringe embarrassment a lot by watching the show. And that is not the way that they want you to feel at all. Everything is like super, um, like they, the, the music swells and they want you to be having all of these like emotional, uh, revelations and like feel all these big profound, ideas that they're trying to drive home and just like all of it falls flat for me like the entire show is like almost every single aspect of it is just a pure failure in my mind which is like really wow um, wow this is the the harshest criticism i've heard of it because i've only heard basically (laughs) universal praise i know i had too and so i was like you know saving it and really looking forward to it and I, i moved the book up in my reading list because i wanted to watch the show you know sooner and i'm glad that i read the book because i really enjoyed that but Oh man, Station Eleven! What a huge miss for me. So um, I know that there are people, obviously, who who really love it, and uh, I'm definitely like on the outside looking in on this. But um, in case you happen to see the show and just like couldn't make your way through it because it was so, uh, yeah, just like cringy, I'm I'm right there with you. I, I suffered all the way through it just because I, I wanted to see how it ended and how you know far askew from the novel or and the the events of the novel that it it actually went because it's sort of like. There are some things that that it's uh, exactly adapting, and then others that it's not at all. Um, and I just, uh, as a as a work of adaptation, I didn't really appreciate it as a as a um, as a show. I just, yeah, it, it did not work for me at all. So, do you think you would have enjoyed it more if you hadn't read the book beforehand? Uh, yes, but um, I, but only marginally because I still would have been put off a lot by like I wouldn't have been I guess distracted by like the um you know the book was better in my mind playing simultaneously as I'm watching every episode and like oh I you know I prefer the way that the story this storyline played out in the book versus you know that those kinds of thoughts um but I still would have. I know myself well enough to know that I would have been annoyed by the same things that I was annoyed at ultimately. So, uh, yeah, station 11, eesh, not, not my favorite show of the, of, uh, 2021. So, um, that is on HBO max. If you care to watch it. Uh, I also watched the first episode of the last movie stars issue. Did you end up watching this, this show? This is also an HBO max thing. You know, there's a whole story about, around behind why I didn't end up watching this show. But it was because I was supposed to get an interview with Ethan Hawke. That didn't happen. I never got my screeners either, so I didn't watch the show. (laughs) Okay, so for those who don't know, The Last Movie Stars is uh, a documentary series um, directed by Ethan Hawke. And it is about Joanne Woodward and uh, Paul Newman, who were married and movie stars and just like, you know, these great philanthropists and uh, some of the most celebrated actors of of uh, American movies, really, period. Um, they were just like this incredible force of nature all throughout the, the 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, they, they were, their careers are um, sort of incredible to think about that that two of the greatest American actors were married to each other and working together and just sort of keeping each other at the top of their game. And um, this documentary goes into a lot of their history, sort of their lives apart, their lives together, uh, the marriages that were their that were uh, sort of crushed and left on the sidelines as they got together and um, the work that they did together and and the movies and the, the legacy that they left behind. And it's a multi-part, it's a multi-episode thing. I want to say it's like six or eight episodes or something. And I only watched the first one because I realized that there were so many movies of Newman's and Woodward's that I had not seen. The, the 
first episode is like, um, it, it just feels like this whirlwind of like, you know, here they are uh, studying at the actor studio with Marlon Brando and um, James Dean and Marilyn Monroe. And here's these movies that they were in, in, you know, the fifties and sixties. And I'm like, I've heard of some of these. I haven't seen them and they're showing clips and I'm like, Oh God, I really would like to have better context for what's going on here. Not that the documentary does a bad job. I just want to, I want to have the knowledge ahead of time. So I, we stopped my wife and I stopped watching the show and we just added a ton of like Paul Newman and, and uh, Joanne Woodward movies to our watch list. So we're going to watch a bunch of those and then go back and resume watching the show. But um, I really, really enjoyed the first episode. It's, it's a, it, Ethan Hawke does this fascinating thing where he he I think Paul Newman um, was originally going to write an autobiography at one point in his life and he abandoned that project. But during the sort of preparation for that project, he interviewed I guess he he participated in interviews and then he interviewed a bunch of his friends or like had somebody do it, a co-writer or something, interview a bunch of his famous friends uh, talking about like. Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward and like their inner lives and their, their behavior and their friendship and, and what they meant to them. And all of these incredible people participated in this thing. All of the audio tapes from that project have been destroyed, but there were transcripts left behind of all of them. So Ethan Hawke basically gets together with over the pandemic. He made this over the pandemic. So he gets together on zoom with George Clooney and Laura Linney and Sam Rockwell and, um, Vincent D'Onofrio and all of his like famous friends now. And they basically stage like a live reading uh, where each of these people reads the transcripts that were conducted uh, from these interviews that were conducted, you know, decades ago. And so it sort of gives you this sense of like um, something that happened a long time ago, but also like there's a modernity to it. There's like a modern take on it and you can recognize it and it just brings the whole thing to life in a really, really fascinating way. So uh, I've only seen one episode, so I feel like so silly talking about this show for this long, but I really think it's worth people's time. I mean, obviously um, it made an impact on you, so. Yeah, even, I mean, if for no other reason than just watching the clips of these movies and being like, holy shit, these guys were like powerhouse performers. And I'm sad to say that Joanne Woodward, you know, she won multiple Emmys and and at least one Oscar and is like a, you know, was a, a huge, uh, a huge deal in that period in American movies. And I have not really seen a ton of her work at all so um my the first movie that we watched my wife and i after watching this uh this documentary series was rachel rachel which was from 1968 and uh, paul newman actually directed this movie and woodward stars in it and she plays this like 36 year old school teacher in a really small town who basically has like uh she she lives this sort of um buttoned up life and um everything is very uh tightened up and and she lives with her mom who's this overbearing woman and she eventually has this sort of like late stage sexual awakening and uh realizes that you know her life is not um it doesn't have to be this sort of like uh yeah like tied up sort of buttoned up um she doesn't have to live the what the life that she's been leading for the past 30 years so uh she she ends up like getting in this relationship with this real shitheel former classmate that she um, she knew and and uh, sort of rekindles a, a relationship with, and uh, it's just this really like um, stripped down like acting showcase for Joanne Woodward, and she does a great job. And Newman is really like surprisingly uh, adept behind the camera. I mean, I think he directed like a couple shorts or something before this, but this is his first 
uh, directorial feature film. And um, it, it's a it's a bit of a slow movie. It came out, like I said, in 68. So it sort of has that like, uh, it's sort of like, um, I don't know, saunters its way through the storytelling in a, in a, in a way. Um, uh-huh. But uh, but yeah, it's definitely worth watching if you want to get uh, a good idea of what um, Joanne Woodward's talents were. Because, yeah, um, I can't say I've seen a lot of Joanne Woodward movies, I'm realizing. I've seen Newman movies, but yeah, I haven't seen um, anything Joanne Woodward. Was, uh, oh, no, just kidding. I've see, I seen The Three Faces of Eve. So Okay, yeah, that was one that I added to my list because I'd never seen that. But just like listening to Ethan Hawke talk in that first episode about how revered um, Woodward in particular was because I think she often gets overshadowed because Newman is, you know, is who he was and was Paul Newman, cast, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. his classics and his face is all over the, the uh, salad dressing and everything. Um, <laughs> you know, th- there is a, uh, I-, I think she has been overshadowed a lot. And I think this documentary does a good job in, in sort of like pulling that curtain back and giving her a little bit of time in the spotlight. So uh, yeah, that is the last movie stars, which is on HBO max and uh, Rachel, Rachel, which I think I watched on the criterion collection or the criterion channel rather. Um, okay, last thing. Uh, I watched a movie called Contempt from 1963. This is a French New Wave movie written and directed by Jean-Luc Godard. It stars uh, Bridget Bardot and Michel Piccoli and Jack Palance, who was the villain in Tim Burton's Batman. He was in. He was the villain in um, uh, uh, not Starsky and Hutch, uh, Tango and Cash. Um, he was, I think, in like uh, City Slickers. <laughs> like, I want to say he was like like Curly in, in those movies. Um, so he's a guy that you'll probably recognize, but. Um, he plays this, uh, this American producer who, uh, I think they're in Italy trying to make a a movie adaptation of the Odyssey and they've hired within the the story of this movie, they've hired uh, German director Fritz Lang who plays himself as the director of this, this project, which is really interesting to see. Um, and Palance is this, uh, is this producer and the whole movie is about um, Bridget Bardo is, is the star and she it's it's about her relationship with her husband, who's the screenwriter that's been hired for this uh, to rewrite this version of, of the Odyssey. And the whole movie is like a feature length argument between the, the, the members of this couple. And so it's a little um, it's a little tough to watch at times because one person is clearly in the wrong and the argument that they have is just very uh circular and they keep going back to make the same points over and over again. Um, but this was, I think this might've been the first Bridget Bardot movie that I've ever seen. And she was very good in it. And the, the, um, I've, I've seen a handful of Godard movies. I don't know how familiar you are with his stuff. HG, have you seen a lot of Godard I've stuff? I've seen several Godard. I did. I took a French new wave class. So oh, cool. To okay. Be, to be like, Oh, in college. So did you watch Contempt during that I class? I did watch Contempt. I watched Breathless uh, and um, I think a couple of other films, uh, Band Apart. Uh, what was it? Um, yeah, those are the, the main ones that I watched. But um, yeah. I love Breathless. I thought that was fantastic. I know. Like, yeah, I have not seen Breathless yet. It's been a while since I've seen any Godard stuff. But like the style, um, you know, the the production design, uh, the camera work, all of that and the editing and everything. I, I appreciated all of that. Um really the reason that we watch this movie is because there's a set piece at the very end where they're filming uh, part of this, this version of the Odyssey on the island of Capri, which is off the coast of Italy. And my wife and I are going to be going there at the end of this month and uh, taking a little, uh, like essentially like a day trip out to Capri. And we were watching uh, the trip to Italy, the um, Steve Coogan, Rob Bryden movie from several years ago. And they, 
I guess, sailed past this location and mentioned, oh yeah, this this was seen in the movie Contempt, and I'd never heard of it before. So mm-hmm. um, we added it to our our list and watched it. And the the setting is just gorgeous. I mean, it's it's yeah, really incredible. So it's worth watching if for no other reason, like put it on put it on mute and put it in the background or something because it's like <laughs> I, the the uh, production design and the the actual like practical locations are incredible in this. That reminds me, there is one movie that I've seen of, of Godard that kind of reminds me of Contempt in the way you were describing it of just being kind of hard to watch. Uh, it's called Weekend. It's from 1967. And it's a film that is very much sort of like a satire in, uh, in some ways, the bourgeoisie. That's what the, the French love to make fun of in the French mm. New Wave times. Um, and it's about like several families and couples trying to take a trip out to the countryside. Um, but it's punctuated by all this really like extreme bits of violence, uh, mostly car crashes. And there's there's one extremely long take i think went on for like six minutes or something of just one long car crash wow um and it like pans through this car crash that take that as it goes down the road and it's like just every car has um been totaled and it's just like uh you know smashed up against the last the previous one um and everyone there's a bunch of people crying and bleeding and there's fire and everything but then it kind of keeps going along and then there's just people who are either watching and being voyeurs or the people who just are sitting outside and having picnics by this fiery inferno Mm. of a car crash it's very you know oh society yeah the symbolism (laughs) yes exactly Uh, that's really interesting because this movie there's a big car crash in it as well um so i wonder if he was sort of like you know, planting the seeds here and then uh, capitalizing on it a few years later, sort of like uh, expanding on that idea a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, hmm, okay, well, yeah, uh, Contempt, you know, not my favorite movie, uh, probably not even my favorite Godard movie, but um, some good things about it. And I'm, I'm curious to get a little bit more into uh, Bridget Bardo's um, uh, filmography because I've not seen anything else that she's done. And I know that she's like a, a major uh, figure in, in 60s and 70s cinema anyway. So um, yeah, that's that's all I got. Uh, I think that's going to do it for today. Aisha, do you have any, any closing thoughts? Anything that you uh, wanted to say? That's it. We went long on this one, Ben. We yeah. On. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, you, that, that's going to be it for today's episode. You can find more about a lot of the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com. And I'm going to link to a few of them in the show notes. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashholland.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Get everything you need for your next project today at Menards and save big money. LP SmartSide products are the number one brand of engineered wood siding. SmartSide trim and siding offers long-lasting performance and delivers the warmth and beauty of traditional wood. Save big money today at Menards and LP SmartSide products. Plus, visit Menards.com to view the weekly flyer and check out all of our great deals happening this week. Save